Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips, too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast. Our listeners on both Talk Radio WWDB and WPEN HD2 97.5 FM. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you. What an outstanding show we have for you today. We're going to start off by talking whiskey, bourbon, and spirits with Richard from Pennsylvania Distilling Company. And then we have an awesome interview with Susan from Riley's Candies in the historic town of Medford, New Jersey. And we're going to end the show with another fantastic business in Medford, New Jersey. It is called the Medford Bagel Shop. And we will be talking with Eric to end the show. Amorous Pollock, introduce our fabulous guest. Hi, I'd like to introduce all of our listeners to Richard Bioni. He is the owner of Pennsylvania Distilling Company, which is located in Malvern, PA. Richard, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Amaris. It's my pleasure. So you have a new distillery in, in the business. It's not very old, but it definitely has made a mark. Um, I actually met you at the Mainline Today event that was held for the industry and tasted some of your lovely and amazing, very um, memorable <laughs> whiskeys and um I am not a huge fan of whiskey, but you, as soon as I took a sip of it, I was like, I need to have this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you give a little bit of history about where you, like what you did before and how you came about, you know, becoming a distiller? Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for those compliments. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, we are new. We we are new, uh, pretty new to the scene. Uh, I started doing planning for the distillery in 2016. I did the build out through 2017, and I opened in 20 early 2018. So um, yeah, but prior to to my life as a distiller and a distillery owner, uh, I did a number of things uh, in industry for about 31, 32 years. Uh, I am a chemical engineer. That was my first degree. And I uh, spent a lot of time uh, during those days in large manufacturing plants. So five years in chemicals, 10 years in refining, oil refining. And then uh, uh, after that, uh, I became a management consultant for uh, the world's largest professional services firm. And I traveled the world uh, helping clients with a number of different engagements. Uh, the common theme for all the clients that I served which were Fortune 50, Fortune 100 clients, the common theme was that they made something. So uh, it could have been chemicals, could have been pharmaceuticals, could have been widgets, could have been aerospace and defense, you know, whatever it was. And uh, after uh, all those years, 12 years of being on the road uh, in a number of different countries, um, I traveled pretty much 100% of the time. Uh, I finally got off the road, uh, and I worked at uh, two other companies uh, 
um, running their supply chains. Uh, one was a technology company. The other was a global food company based in, 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 uh, in Europe. And after that, uh, it was time for me to leave industry and do my own thing. So that's kind of what I did. I decided to get into distilling uh, for a number of reasons, but I would say that the key ones are, number one, I was too young really to not work. I was 52 when I left industry. So uh, I wanted to work and do something that I enjoyed. Um, so I knew it had to be manufacturing something. Um, I also, uh, in 1980, I made my first batch of beer uh, at home uh, in, in 1980. And then I made it, you know, uh, up until probably about 87, uh, enjoying, you know, experimenting with the various kinds of beer that you make. And of course you have to make beer to make spirits. And then, um, and then I kind of did it on and off over the years, you know, just enjoying it for myself and my friends, et cetera. Uh, in 94, when I got my MBA, I got my chemical engineering degree at Drexel in the 80s. And then in 94, I got an MBA at Villanova. And uh, I wanted to uh, open a brew pub. And uh, so I had a small team. It was me and two other guys. And we we were planning the brew pub. We were very, very, very close. It was 1994. We were pretty much there. And it was in media on State Street. And it didn't happen. I wasn't ready to leave my career and the, the, the guy who was going to run the day-to-day -day at the at the very end backed out. So I always kind of thought it would have been interesting to, to do that brew pub. And then, uh, you know, years later, I got a uh, an executive master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania at Wharton in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and, and I decided that was in 05 that I wanted to start thinking about what do I want to do when I do something working for myself. And so when it came time, I really I, I looked again at beer, and I also looked at spirits because the time, I think, was right to do it. A lot of the rules and laws and whatnot had changed in the various states and continue to evolve, and I just felt that it was a good time to get in uh, and do something in spirits and something that I would really enjoy. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of how I got <laughs> here, America. <clears throat> I mean, and I'm sure that to some level, the chemical engineering helps with creating, you know, just the right, uh, I would say, list of ingredients and how much to put in it in order to create the the distillery brews that you make, the vodkas, the gins, and, you know, your bourbon, as well as your whiskey, um, you have a variety that that's out there. And so I'm assuming that your chemical engineering background, you know, adds to your finite. Um, I'm trying to think of the word that I want to use, but the what gives it that extra special dazzle, you know, and makes it taste that much better. Yeah, I, I, w I would definitely agree with that. I, in the word I would use, it's kind of in my DNA. So you know, in the, in the distilling industry worldwide, uh, chemical engineers are deployed in the industry, both beer and distilling, obviously, and also, of course, wine and wineries. And, uh, you know, a chemical engineer has the kind of experience that uh, uh, basically fits hand in glove with those, those industries. Um, so, yeah, it was a good fit for me. Uh, I wasn't nervous about anything. I was fully confident that I could do it. 
uh, and and really without hardly any help, and and I have. And, you know, the, the actual aspect, I'm the only one that works in my distillery. Nobody works for me or with me. Oh, wow. I make, I make everything from scratch. So I'm, I'm a pure uh, grain-to-bottle distillery. Uh, I don't buy any third-party spirits. So everything I make, I make myself. And I make it all from scratch, all from grains and malts. And um, I source all of my grains and malts from small farms in Pennsylvania exclusively. And they're all non-GMO. So, you know, I'm, part of my story is the terroir around spirits, you know, that, like you would normally associate with, with wine and, and even today with beer. And I'm doing that with my spirits. I mean, after all, I'm called Pennsylvania Distilling Company. So uh, I enjoy working with the small businesses and the small farms. The, the distillation, uh, the, the beer side of the house is, is, is pretty simple and straightforward for me. Uh, that's how that's using the the mash tun, the fermenters, and the yeast, and uh, and that kind of stuff to 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 create the washer, the distiller's beer, and then the distillery side of the house is really very simple for me because I had I had operated and had management uh, responsibilities for a very very large uh, distillery uh, in uh, distillation assets in the in the oil business for a lot of years, so. You know, it's kind of one of those things where I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, my my spirits, you know, when I first started out, obviously this is a trickier ball game than, say, uh, beer and probably more so than wine, in my opinion, because, you know, you you have to you have to age the whiskeys. Um, they have to be ready uh, so people that enjoy them. So, you know, from a finance standpoint, you really have to watch your cash flow, obviously, because you're investing in your inventory over a period of time, and you're not able to, to enjoy any revenue for that inventory for quite some time, uh, you know, a year, two years, and longer. So it's tricky that way. I guess I could have purchased third-party spirits and put my label on it, but I just chose not to do it. So I haven't done that. Um but so far, so good. I get a lot of really good feedback on my spirits, uh, Amorous, and I'm happy about that. And honestly, that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> well, that's really why I'm doing this. I mean, as I said, I, I had your, I actually had your uh, rye whiskey a little earlier today, just so that I can remind myself of how wonderful it is. Um, and, and just for anybody who's listening, it's the Pennsylvania Liberty rye whiskey. Um, it's it's very good. I as I said, I usually um I usually can't actually drink whiskey. It it makes me gag because the peatiness is too too hard on me. But you have a, a rye whiskey that is so smooth that I just I was surprised that it was like, oh no, I could keep drinking this. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I I appreciate that absolutely. I've heard that from a lot of people, and rye whiskey of all the whiskeys is my favorite whiskey. Uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of lore uh, behind rye whiskey in Pennsylvania. Obviously, uh, Pennsylvania was really the largest producer of rye whiskey in the world for a long period of time uh, back in the early days, pre-prohibition. And you know, we're kind of known for it. I would say Maryland as well. But but uh, um, you know, I wanted to bring a lot of that back. You know, today. In today's uh, post-prohibition world, the, the, the whiskey of choice, the brown whiskey of choice, has been bourbon. 
And uh, it would take me a long time to explain to you why that's the case, because <laughs> you have to really kind of understand what happened before prohibition, during and after. Nevertheless, uh, prior to that, it was by far rye whiskey. And what turns some people off on rye whiskey, I think, if they drink it neat, is that spiciness that you get from the rye. You know, it's that spiciness, I think, that adds such a wonderful characteristic set of characteristics to the flavor profile. Yeah. But that's what the rye grain does. And mine is a high rye. So mine is, uh, you know, it's um, a, a small uh, quantity, uh, somewhere on the order of 20% uh, Wapsie Valley corn, which is an heirloom corn grown in Pennsylvania. And the balance is um, rye and rye malt. So mine is a very high rye, and I wanted it to really kind of bring the rye out in its flavor. Yeah. And I mean... So, oh, no, go ahead, Gene. So obviously, I, I too have a, a background in sciences, but, you know, what sets your products aside, having tasted them, is that you must have a deep personal interest in bourbons and, and well, in, in whiskeys and, and products because, you know, the chemical engineering part is wonderful and understanding distillation is wonderful, but that's not going to yield you that nuance that you have in your products. Um, you, you just explained your rye, and, and I love the history of it, and I know the history of, you know, old rye versus modern-day bourbon, and, and um, I'm a big uh, history buff. But where did your personal, you know, your personal interest come from? Because your products have flavor profiles that aren't just coming out of a chemical engineer. They're coming out of somebody who really enjoys your product. So could you talk to us a little bit about that side of your product as opposed to the engineering part? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I think you're right about that. You know, I... I, I guess like many people who enjoy adult beverages, you know, I, uh, in my early days, was pre primarily a beer drinker, and I, and I just loved, loved it when uh, the craft beer revolution hit, uh, which really kind of started in 1973 in San Francisco. But, you know, it really got on a head of steam, no pun intended, uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, uh, and then it's continued to evolve. And so I always thought beer was interesting, and I and then as I got a little older and started to enjoy not only wines but different spirits uh, such as scotches and different kinds of whiskeys, whether it be an Irish whiskey or or whatever it was, um, you know, you really, uh, for me, I would say, you know, that's a really interesting uh, flavor profile. You know, I wonder how they do that. Uh, it's I think it's more difficult to be able to differentiate spirits in general versus beer and wine uh, due to the fact that the alcohol concentration is so much higher. And that does have an effect on the, both your taste and your olfactory sense. Nevertheless, if you, if you sip uh, a, a, a spirit and you either within one class or amongst classes, you, you kind of can start to understand some of the differences. And then if you, if you kind of, what I would do is I would kind of look and look, look up how, well, I wonder how they make this. And then you would kind of start to be able to connect the dots. 
and say, okay, you know, these are the kinds of ingredients that are going to give a bourbon its characteristic flavor. These are the kinds of ingredients that are going to give a single malt whiskey its characteristic flavor, like this, right? So I think it's a combination of personal interest uh, in, in, the, in the products themselves. Uh, and, uh, and for me personally, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a little fortunate in that, you know, because I'm the only one here, uh, who, who works in the distillery, um, I just do it my way and I'm extremely detail oriented. So I don't cut any corners. I'm, I'm very careful and meticulous in terms of, uh, how I make my products. I want them to be the best that they can be within the constraints of the systems that I have, right? So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we are. You know, I, when I sit down and develop, I make nine products right now. When I sit down to develop a, a product, for the most part, the recipe, the mash bill, is really off the top of my head. Uh, you know, obviously, I know the rules and constraints in the beverage alcohol manual. You know, you have to work within the confines of the law, of course, and the and the, the constraints for, for uh, truth and labeling laws. But there is a lot of freedom uh, in each of the types of spirits that you can make. So rather than kind of enter into this industry and say, oh, jeepers, you know, I really like, uh, you know, Brand X whiskey. It's really good. I mean, I drank it for 10 years or 15 years. I think I want to make that. I, I, I don't do it like that. I, I do it based on I think that this is going to be an interesting whiskey to make it this way. And that's what I do. So, you know, so, so I, and I think that, you know, it, it's good to do that because, you know, here we are 35 years after the, the beginning of the craft beer revolution. Now we kind of have this craft spirits revolution uh, where we went from, say, 15 or 20 small distilleries 15 years ago to over 2,000 now and, and climbing. And I think it's, it's good that a lot of us are, are doing different things and giving consumers choice, lots of choices. So, well, your high rye, your your high percentage rye, is really a, like kind of an heirloom product. It it really is reminiscent of, you know, what whiskeys would have been pre-prohibition in Philadelphia, the state of Pennsylvania, pretty much in the, in the tri-state area or even the East Coast. So, you know, kudos to you for doing that because there's not a lot of people who are willing to gamble with that due to these, you know, Amherst's objection to the spice content or the bite of it. You know, I like that. I, 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 that's what sets a rye away from me. You know, for me, I, I want to go there. So it, it's really nice to have had your rye and, and taste that and really get that, you know, bite that I, that I know to be a rye whiskey i uh you know i'm the son of a a coal miner or coal region pennsylvania person who taught me to drink bourbon at a young age so i really appreciate your products from that point of view <laughs> that's great i love it i love that story well you know i am a first generation american so everybody in my family uh, came here from italy and uh um, you know, so, you know, I grew up in a blue collar family and a hardworking family. And, and I, you know, I learned like, like you did, uh, a lot of, a, a lot of lessons around doing something, whatever it may be, but doing it to the best of your abilities and doing it with passion. So I, 
I'm just, I guess it's just kind of plugged into me that way. That's all there is to it. There's no other, because a lot of people ask me about that, and that's really my answer. It is true. But, you know, the rye whiskey is wonderful, and, you know, obviously here we are in Pennsylvania, and I'm, and I'm making rye whiskey. I am also making uh, the bourbon whiskey, as Amara said, had alluded to earlier. The bourbon whiskey is a terrific whiskey. I really can't make enough of it. I stock out. If uh, if a barrel's not ready to harvest, then I just don't. But uh, uh, people in this country, if you're going to drink brown whiskey, they love bourbon because it's still considered the American spirit. Uh, so I, I make and sell a lot of bourbon, uh, the Dewey's number 69. The, uh, the, the, the other brown whiskey that I make, and I make two of them, uh, are single malt whiskeys, which basically are American scotches. And uh, sure. the one that I've been selling, excuse me, is a... Uh, I, my, the maltster that I use is in northern Montgomery County, Double Eagle Malts, Alan Gladish, a terrific guy. And, and when I developed that recipe, I asked Alan, do you have access to uh, Pennsylvania cherry wood? And he said yes. And I said, well, take 10% of my, my malted barley and smoke it over the Pennsylvania cherry wood, and the other 90% leave it the way it is. So that's the mash bill. Uh, for that single malt whiskey. I just wanted a very subtle smoke, and I think I was able to achieve that. Uh, and the other single malt whiskey that I haven't released yet will get released late next year. It uses five specialty malts. It's a real, it's it's tasting quite nicely, and it's very unique. So that's going to be an interesting release. And then uh, I also make, uh, and it was my first whiskey, is an unaged rye whiskey. And, you know, when I, when I, well, yeah, it, it's the same mash bill, same process as my aged rye. It's just unaged, and the reason, I, and the old timers called it white dog or white lightning. The reason I make it is it's it's terrific in cocktails. It is smooth compared to other unaged rye whiskeys. And you know, what, again, I didn't buy anybody's spirits. So what a lot of guys will do is, you know, I have a cocktail bar attached to my distillery. Uh, you know, they want to have brown whiskey for their drinks in their cocktail bar, and I get that. I'm not going to do that, so I put uh, our unaged rye whiskey in our whiskey cocktails for the first, you know, about a year and a half, and people enjoyed it, so everything worked out well uh, while the other stuff aged. So I continue to make the white rye, and I also make vodka, I make gin, and I make two rums. I make a, a silver rum or what I call white rum, and I make a gold rum. So so that's they're, they're my nine products right now. And, uh, you know, I'm a small outfit, guys. You know, I have to be careful about, you know, managing too many SKUs and getting a little crazy that way. So what I do is, uh, you know, I'm reticent about, uh, you know, kind of coming out with anything new. But I am right now starting to work on uh, a new spirit. It's a new whiskey that I think is going to be, it's going to be a new bourbon. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be using very interesting ingredients that I think it's going to be well-received. So we'll see what happens with that one. I mean, I look forward to whatever it is that you're creating. And maybe <laughs> off-air you can give me more of a hint of what that is. <laughs> um, and I want to say, because I have um, a list of all of your whiskeys or all of your uh, distilled liquors in front of me, and I will. Mm -hmm. And right now, I'm looking at the Distillers Reserve, which is that uh, the Pennsylvania Distilling American Single Malt that you were describing with the cherry, the smoked cherry wood. Um, I would love to try that because just, I mean, you you definitely have a passion because 
for one, you have a passion for obviously distilling and making something that's going to linger on your palate and taste very good. But all of all of the things that you create are something that, as you had mentioned, you get everything from, you know, the local areas, the local farms. So it's almost like when you're purchasing your your brand, you are drinking in Pennsylvania. You are getting a taste of what Pennsylvania can offer just in a single sip. And I, you know, I love that you you have that passion where you're just pulling from everyone locally. And it and it it does create a like small like a nice green foot, footprint where it's a small one and you're you know you're you're offering sustainability in that because it's not as far as you know you you don't have to go as far to get to transport the ingredients that you're putting in to your mash and and whatnot. So I just want to mention the fact that you know you do go the extra mile or don't go the extra mile I should say to you know bring the ingredients that that are going to go into what you're creating so you know I just like that you have so much passion because everyone that you talk to you like you were animated and you had passion when you were discussing what it is that you do and you know the tastes and the profiles and, and whatnot when I had met you so to me that that is distinguished you know as as somebody who is a distiller. Yeah, thank thank you for that, uh, Amaris. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, when I started to really kind of think about doing this thing, you know, I thought back to my early days with the beer, and I said, Jeepers, it would be a, a, a kind of a boring world uh, if back uh, when the craft beer revolution started that everybody basically said, let's make Budweiser or let's make Miller. You know, let's make an American lager that's always been made. And that would have been a real shame. Uh, and as we know now, there are so many different kinds of wonderful beers uh, make your head spin. It's like the same as being in Belgium or Germany or wherever. <laughs> and, you know, with the spirits, you know, we can do the same thing, right? You know, I could have said, oh, you know what, I'm going to make uh, make it just like, you know, brand A or brand B or uh, you know, to to, to 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 maybe increase my margins, I'm going to buy my ingredients through a broker. And therefore, the, the, the price of the ingredients will be significantly less than what I pay now, right? Because it's a scale business. And I decided not to do that. I want to I support local businesses. I want to support the small farms. And I know they need that support, which, which I think is great. And uh, there are other guys like me who are doing that, and I just think it's terrific. You know, I, the, the, my, my, my main uh, source for my grains is Dancing Star Farms out, out in, 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 uh, in western Pennsylvania. Uh, Bob McDonald, he just does a, a wonderful job. He grows so many interesting kind of heirloom grains uh, that, that you don't really see too much of those around anymore, although it's growing now that there's there's industries that are looking for that kind of stuff so um you know i've been pretty lucky you know my suppliers are great and uh um and they're they're easy to work with and i think we're kind of after the same thing so <laughs> you know i guess to sum it up i do walk the talk you know my story is all about what i'm saying and this is what i do i was at an i was at an american distilling institute conference back in my planning days and the one the one guy, there were, I guess, a couple thousand people there. It was a multi-day event. They have it every year. And the one, they were talking about buying the third-party spirits. And then the one guy asked me, 
who are you going to buy from? And I said, I'm not going to buy anybody. I'm making my own. He said, what's the matter? You don't want to make money? (laughs) 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 That's what he said to me, and I laughed, of course. But, you know, there, there are different objectives and different ways that people want to do this, right? Yeah. Now, speaking of purchasing things and making money, where can when where can our listeners find your your products and find you well, online? Think, yeah, yeah. You know, again, we're in a control state here in Pennsylvania. There's 18 control states, so uh, I sell. Uh, I can ship to any address inside the state of Pennsylvania. I ship via direct via FedEx. Um, I also sell to a number, I think it's 31 now or 32 bars and restaurants down in the southeast, you know, in the Philadelphia area uh, as well, although COVID really kind of changed a lot of that. And then I I am in um, 16 uh, fine wine and good spirit shops. They're the state stores if you're a Pennsylvanian. Uh, I'm in those as well, but not all of my products, just a few. And I'm also uh, in three farmer's markets, and the farmer's market sales are very robust. And I'm in the, 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 the Amish West Town Market in Westchester, Highland Orchards in Westchester, and Wolf's Apple House in Delaware County. So, you know, it's, it's really kind of a multi-channel. I sell directly from here as well, from the distillery. I, I do bottle sales. And, and um, you, know, we, you know, as we grow, uh, we, we look to, to maybe – increase in the our our opportunities in the channels that we're in we are also on spirits hub which is an online uh virtual spirits retailer located in illinois and so therefore that gives us the ability to sell to people through spirits hub to illinois new hampshire north dakota and nebraska they're licensed in those four uh states so you know during during uh, just before covid we were close to closing a deal with a distributor uh, that, that covers multi-states and COVID hit and everything changed. So, uh, you know, we're hoping to kind of rekindle uh, those things and, and come around and be, and be available through some distributors in some of the other states like New Jersey and Delaware, Maryland, Washington, D.C., New York, et cetera. Okay. And I look forward to that when you do, because I live in New Jersey. But now where can our listeners go online to find you before we let you go? It's pendistilling.com, and in there you'll see where our, our spirits are available as well, and, of course, my contact information is in there too. We also have an online store where you can look at all of our spirits. You can look at our swag, whatever it is you might be interested in. We also have – I do tours and tastings here at the distillery. We do events here in the cocktail bar. We have one coming up for uh, about 70 people uh, pretty soon. It's this month, and then one for 50 people the next month. So – we do that kind of stuff uh, fairly often, guys. Okay. Uh, and that's really, that's how we get our brand awareness, really, is how we do that. All right. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I can't believe how fast the time went. Thank you, Richard. Richard thank you, guys. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, take care now. Thank you, you so much too. for the opportunity. No problem. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Let's take a <laughs> break. We're going to go to break and we'll be right back. Food Farms and Chefs is brought to you by Visit Delco PA. Don't make a plan this weekend. Make all the plans in Delaware County, PA. Try some arts and crafts by taking in a play at one of our renowned theaters and discover what's on tap at the amazing Delco craft beer scene. Or you can enjoy a bit of rock and roll by exploring the beautiful stone waterfalls at Ribby Creek State Park. 
Park and try out one of the famous Delco Steaks, voted Best of Philly Cheesesteak for 2021 by Philadelphia Magazine, and maybe get a little wild and free by biking, hiking, or strolling through the trails and gardens throughout the county and walk in the footsteps of those who fought for independence at Brandywine Battlefield. This weekend, you can do it all in Delco. For more information, you can go to visitdelcopa.com. And we're back. Amorous Pollock, introduce your fantastic guest. Hi, everyone. I would like to introduce you to Susan Suzanne Palkin, who is from Riley's Candies. They have been established in Medford, New Jersey for a very long time, and I've been going to them since I was a little girl. So it is my pleasure to introduce Riley's Candies to all of you. Hi, thank you for uh, coming on our show and introduce yourself and tell us how you're involved with Riley's Candies as one of the generations that runs it. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Riley's was started in 1963 by my father, um, literally over um, in his mother's kitchen over an old stove where he started experimenting with different candy recipes. Uh, and formulas. Uh, it was something that kind of evolved over time, and he started wholesaling and fundraising his candy as kind of a part-time hobby. And after a few years of perfecting his his skills, um, he met my mother, and the two of them together decided to expand the business a little bit more, and they opened uh, their first retail shop here in Medford, in 1979 and it has graduated and grown over the years to uh, where we are now we've had some very humble beginnings to say the least Um, but you know we're continuing to grow even in this pandemic and um, we're happy to serve the community and be a part of everyone's um, family traditions at the holidays and and you definitely are um as i said i had one i for all of you listening at home and you know who are driving i actually uh went to riley's candies earlier today to pick up um a few boxes of the chocolates and i have to admit they went very fast it was like everybody (laughs) at the station kind of flocked at once and they were like eating it like little you know they were like circling it they literally stood around (laughs) and were circling it (laughs) and they they kind of like eyed it up until i was like you can eat it and so yeah and then it was like all all in (laughs) you know they're kind of circling like kind of like i don't want to say not not a vulture but kind of you know (laughs) I mean, you put chocolate. Yeah, exactly. And you put chocolate in front of somebody and they just I mean, they're going to love it, but they loved it even more because you can taste the difference. Because, I mean, when you walk into Riley's Candies, when you open up that door, you get hit with that first like plume of chocolate just that kind of sits in the air. And it's like, you know, you're getting a good product because you can smell it from minute one. Yeah. I think, well, part of that, I, I think, relates to the fact that we, we still make 90% of it here um, on the premises. And there's not many places around that still do that. Sure, there, there might be a candy store, but the chances of them making it there um, are, are slim. You know, it's, it's very slim. They might make, you know, maybe one or two items, but even then, I think it, that, you know, yeah. It would be questionable, but um, 
we um, we make it here. So I think that's part of, you know, when you walk in, you, you smell it right away because it's literally on the other side of the wall. Yeah. Um, we Yeah, we cook all of our creams, our caramels, our jellies. We cook all of the centers here, and then we coat it in our chocolate. So it's kind of a multi-step process, uh, but it all happens here. And I, I think there aren't many, like I said, there aren't many people like us around that that still do this it's it's still very labor intensive a labor of love if you know, for lack of a better word um it, it's kind of like a dying art you know you don't you know see many places like this around kind of like you know bakeries yeah um there's not many bakeries around anymore uh, not like there used to be so um we're we're happy we're still here and going strong and have the support of people like yourself and and the community um, this is my first time having Riley's chocolates, and what stood out to me yeah. is the quality of the chocolate. I mean, yeah. you can really, really taste that you are doing yeah. a high, high-quality chocolate, and it just hits you right away. It's awesome. Yeah, thank you. That That's nice to hear. I mean, we do pride ourselves on using the, the finest ingredients that, you know, we can get our hands on and the freshest ingredients, so... I'm glad you could you could taste the difference there. You can taste the difference. And I, you know, as I said, I've been going to you since I was a little girl. So, you know, I've grown up with Riley's Candies and celebrated, as you had mentioned, um, holidays by, you know, picking up Halloween candy, like or candies for Halloween, I should say, um, for, at your store. And, you know, when Thanksgiving comes around, Christmas and, you know, Easter, of course, with the the big chocolate eggs like I've been going for a very long time so I know that you celebrate a lot of holidays and you know um what Mm -hmm. what kind of impact how much do you have to produce extra for holidays well um before COVID and before the pandemic we had a pretty good handle on how much we would have to order um you know just pretty much for the holidays, plus a little bit extra in case there was an influx. Um, but with COVID, I guess we don't know if it's because so many people are around or you can't, you know, they're limited in what they can um, do. So now they're just eating more. I, we're not quite sure. We've seen a huge increase um, in business. And not only us, but other people similar to us have had have experienced had that experience as well and of course you know there with demands on um just it seems like every industry demands on getting um supplies whether it be paper products or whether it be ingredients and food products um you know that sometimes is a challenge too but i guess overall to answer your question how much extra do you have to produce you just have to have everything extra on hand and be prepared for um you know 18 hour days because if they're coming through the door you know, we, we don't want to turn anybody away, but, um, you know, we, we, we do our best. So it's, it's, it's hard to gauge sometimes how much extra, I guess, it's when we can't stand up anymore is when we're like, we're, we're done. <laughs> well, I, I, well I, think what, I think what you're experiencing and during COVID, what people are searching for is comfort, nostalgia, yes that warm yeah. feeling and Riley's candies, that, that product. And we spoke to, you know, that 
getting it at every holiday, that familiarity, that safety and comfort. You know, your type of business, your type of quality, I think, really is what people are after. They're, they're not going to, you know, the average candy place or the average bakery or whatever, you know, they're, they're looking for. They want that. They want that experience that you're producing and have been producing since 1963, you know. So, you know, that says a lot about what people think of you, that your sales have increased when other businesses are taking a hit. So, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I think it's a lot to say about what your role in the community and in the candy industry is. I appreciate that. That's nice. I do think they're looking for comfort because – not only are they were they searching for comfort food, um, but we sold a tremendous amount of plush, like stuffed animals, and and the larger ones, the ones like you could hug, and so and people would say, oh, this makes me feel so good, like they just they wanted to hug things, and it wasn't only just young kids; it was like a lot of older people were were just buying these stuffed animals in this plush because it you know it it brought them comfort to some degree, so. Um, but yeah, I, I think you, you, you've hit it on the head. They, they, they're looking for comfort and, you know, we're, we're glad we, we can, you know, we're able to do that and, and, you know, and with the, the people feel good. Yeah. And with the quality that you go to great lengths to make sure that you, that you have the best ingredients, you know, you can definitely taste it like store-bought brand boxes of candy like they're mass produced and they don't have that Mm -hmm. quality aspect i mean do they taste okay yes but they don't have the richness of the chocolate that you are putting the extra love in yeah they i hear what you're saying yeah they taste okay but there's there's something that that that's missing i i i agree yeah um, cause I do, I, you know, I do eat other people's candy. I, I want to try it. <laughs> and, you know, it's common when we go to conventions, um, with different, you know, organizations such as ourselves, when we go, we all bring up, it's called a box candy exchange and you put your box in and you get to taste somebody else's. And then of course, you know, you have friends that you, you meet over the years and, you know, I'll oh, bring me a box a year, you know, cause we have, um, a friend out in, um, Seattle and he's uh, to me he, he's he's a, an old German candy maker and he's he's probably getting close to 80 years old but uh, next to mine I, I honestly I, I he, he that is probably the best candy I've ever had so whenever I go um I'm always you know Bernard please bring me your Mozart Klugen you're you're this you're that and um you know it, but we do we, we do eat other people's candy and um but I guess yeah with with the difference you can, um, and I, part of that too, not only is the ingredients, but also um, how you temper your chocolate, making sure it's, it's you know, handled properly, um, because you can have a, you know, a, a good product, but if it's not, um, if the chocolate isn't tempered correctly, if it's not stored properly, um, you're going to see and taste um, a little difference, I think. Now, Speaking of seeing differences, what mm-hmm. um, are you offering right now seasonally to for, you know, the Thanksgiving or fall season? Well, we just um, we just wrapped up um, New Jersey or, you know, North American blueberry season. Um, we do our chocolate covered blueberries. We start sometime in like May 
um, wherever we can get the berry from the, the U.S. Um, New Jersey's blueberry season is pretty much June and July, and then we start getting berries from Maine or Michigan um, and even Canada. But they're no longer really available, so now we move on to the fall season, which is our caramel apples or caramel chocolate apples, and we also do a chocolate cranberry. It's a dried cranberry, and that's sourced locally as well. The apples are not sourced locally, but um, the cranberries are. Um, so we do, and the, because the cranberries are sourced locally, and it's a dried cranberry, um, those we offer year-round. But um, right now through the month of October, we'll have our caramel apples and our caramel chocolate apples. Um, and then we hope, again, sometime in December to have the blueberries back. Um, the berry will be coming from South America, um, provided there are no, you know, they're not sitting in containers out in the sea um, as, you know, you know, getting held up like so many other things are right now. But um, then we'll we'll start back with those again. But right now it's it's the apples and the cranberries. That is wonderful. Now, I know that this went too fast because I love chocolate, but <laughs> where can our listeners find you online? Oh, we are at Riley'sCandy.com. When you go to the website, there is a link there. It's in blue. It says the chocolate store. That is our link. And um, you can order off of that. Um, you can also call your orders in and um, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And we do just start a TikTok. So if you want to see some candy making videos, we are on TikTok as well. And that is Riley's Candies, R-E-I-L-Y-S, Candy. So yep. thank you for joining us so much, Suzanne. Amorous Pollock, introduce your fantastic guest. Hi, I would like to introduce all of our listeners to the lovely and amazing Eric Mealy, who is the owner of Medford Bagel Shop. That's in Medford, New Jersey. We are spotlighting Medford, New Jersey today. Eric, thank you for calling in. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into making bagels and opened up the location? I mean, you know that I go there and I pick up bagels on a pretty regular basis um, because they're fantastic. Uh, And, you know, you have some big news to announce, too, from South Jersey Magazine. So tell us a little bit about your history and let us know how amazing you are. Okay, thanks. Um, so I worked at the Cinnamons and Bagel Shop from 15 to 18. And uh, my dad used to come in and, and he saw that I could actually handle that kind of business. So he said, instead of going to college, you want to you wanna open a bagel shop? And then I said, yeah, and we did it. And it was 1995. And it was actually like a bagel boom. They were, they were coming in every town then. Before that, there was only one in Cherry Hill and the one in Cinnamon, actually, in South Jersey, pretty much. There was a lot up in North Jersey, but not down here. Um, so we picked Medford because they didn't have one at the time. Yeah. And uh, it was a good good, good score because Medford's a great town. Um and you moved into a store, like the shopping plaza that you moved into. I would like to tell our listeners, it was start, like it was dying. Um, and whether or not your landlord wants to admit to that, it was. And you guys moved in. And even when I passed by it, I was like, 
that place is moving into there and I was I was nervous for you. But since you've moved in and because you offer such amazing products, like your bagels are outstanding. Um, and, you know, because I've had bagels from other places, like little local bagel shops. And I have to say that yours with the quality of ingredients and how you make them, they the that comes through and, you know, it doesn't have I've had bagels from other shops where they undercooked it. You always have it perfectly made and you have such interesting flavors. But I will say that that shopping plaza, as a result of you moving in, has become like a booming shopping plaza now. You revitalized it. Thank you. That's awesome. So what is your process? How do you make decisions on creating the different flavored bagels? Usually recommendations and, and a lot of time employees, other cooks, everybody, everybody wants to add, which is nice. They, they, they really want to get something on the menu, which is nice that they have that energy. Um, but then it's, you know, you look at other bagel shops too. To get um, ideas and, and whatnot from. So um, tell us, what are some of your more popular bagels that are on your menu? Well, everything's the most popular, and that's the best bagel, I think. <laughs> oh, the everything bagel. Yeah. <laughs> I was it, like, and, of course, real everything. Bagel person loves everything. So yeah. yeah, it's good with it. Goes with everything. So, and and then also your cream cheeses are amazing too. Like I, I actually brought um, on a on a trip with my high school friends. I brought a, a selection of your cream cheeses down with us to Maryland, and they became immediately addicted to your veggie cream cheese in particular. So, I want to announce. Or unless if you want to make the announcement, because I'm proud of you that you won Best of South Jersey for your bagels every year. But you also this year won Best of South Jersey Cream Cheese, which is a new category and well, well awarded to you. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. And, and they called me a mix master, which made me feel good. You are a mix master. <laughs> So um, for those of us out there, because everybody, you know, who was stuck at home started making bread and trying to make cookies and breads, bagels, what you not, and, you know, everything under the sun. How, how, what is the process of actually making a bagel? Like what goes through the process to make the bagels as well and efficient as you make them? Well, you got to mix the ingredients first. Um, so it's basically flour salt, yeast, brown sugar, malt, molasses, and uh, shortening. Uh, and now it's all trans fat, shortening, trans fat free. Um, it's been that way. That That's like your dry ingredients and then water. Um, so that's how you, you mix that in the mixer. Then we have a bagel machine that pokes, pokes a hole in it. But the trick and what makes it a real bagel is we boil them in a kettle, like a 40-gallon kettle, for about 30 seconds and then they go on um, two by fours of California redwood and you have to use redwood because it can withstand the heat in the oven like 550 600 degrees if you use a regular two by four day smoke they just burn up um, but you, you have to put them on the redwood because they're wet because they're coming out of the water so they're wet they would stick in the oven if you didn't put them on the two by four 
And then the two by four has a little piece of upholstery on it too. And that's like the old school New York style, hmm. fifty year old. Did you learn uh, that? Recipe type. W- did you learn that when you were working in cinnamons and uh, bagels? Correct. Yeah. Huh. Yep. I see. That's something that I would not have known how to do, <laughs> or to even think to do. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a, a process. It's a lot of labor, but that, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. They sell new um, ovens now that they kind of steam them. So you skip that whole boiling process, but to me, that's not a real bagel. But that's the way we're going. I agree with you 100%. The boiling Thanks. process is the key to a good bagel, 100%. And anybody yeah. who tries to skip that with the combis or any of the new Steve injected ovens, there, it just, you know, in my in my opinion, I'm going to go out and say it's a fraud. I, I agree. So you got to put the work in. You got to put the work in. <laughs> now, speaking of putting the work in, um, you, I mean, on top of the fact that you also make, you make bagels, but you also make lunch items as well. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the, the lunch, lunch items that you, you know, carry in your shop. Just like classic deli stuff, mostly, um, Chicken salad, uh, Reuben. We do a lot of wraps, too, like chicken Caesar wraps. We do breakfast all day. That's our big thing. But we also cater, too. And we cater lunches, mostly to doctor's offices <laughs> from ph- pharmaceutical salespeople. But they always got money, so it's good. Yeah. I, I feel like you're working right now. Like, I feel like you're multitasking a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always. Yeah, just like you guys. <laughs> um, life that. yeah because one of the things that you and i discussed was um you know the impact of staffing shortages and i know that you were fully staffed um during the summertime with you know students that were home from school and right now you're kind of facing a little bit of a staffing shortage which is probably why why you're multitasking tasking right now yeah it's it's a real problem <laughs> it's working like every day there's no breaks you know <laughs> every shift's short but you kind of just take the hand you're dealt and you just got that's what we got to deal with but yeah. we're kind of getting used to it but it's it's exhausting so, but I think the whole world's in this position. Yeah. With the help. So, um, what helped you? Because you know we did face the shutdowns, and there were a lot of little mom and pop, sh- you know, stores that that unfortunately had to close as a result of that. What outside of the fact that you make amazing bagels and and chicken salad and soups? Um, what helped you survive during that the shutdowns? Well, a, a couple things. I, I think we we were allowed to stay open. That was one because <laughs> like the diners had to close, and uh, we were we were set up for takeout the whole time. So um, we just we lost. We actually took the tables out of the restaurant and and the bagel shop and just um, did takeout only. And people, and it gave more space too for the six foot spacing and all. I think if people like to come to the bagel shop because they made a sense of normalcy in the world. They're like, oh, we can still go get a bagel during the crazy in the beginning times. That helped too. I think it was like, let's go just bit of normalcy in our day and go get a bagel. Mostly that stuff. So, um, and then I think you also said that a little bit had to do with the PPP money that that was uh, allotted to businesses that helped you, you know 
gained some ground too but then also your popularity uh with the takeout and you cut back hours if i recall yep yep um without the ppp we probably would have shut down so that that helped because you're in the beginning the first three months there was no customers you know if we normally do 200 customers a day we were doing like 20 so we were losing money and that went on for about two months and then that ppp came around so at least it made up for working for free for two months so i'm what kind of because i know that you run daily specials as well like what on in general would be something that you would offer up for a daily special uh our one big popular breakfast special is a breakfast burrito and it's it's a burrito with eggs home fries bacon sausage pork roll salsa eggs and cheese i said eggs already (laughs) I mean, who doesn't love eggs? It's a nice source of protein, too. Yeah. And uh, we do pancakes and stuff different, like blueberry, and we'll do weird, like crazy Nutella, strawberry, like different flavors all the time. Yeah. And you also offer muffins as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Our chocolate chip muffins are a big seller. And we use a yogurt cake base. We mix it. Oh, I bet that makes it nice and uh, dense. And then and moist, so it has a good like two day shelf life. But I mean, have it like the fact that you I know you have fresh ingredients, you make everything from scratch, which I'm not sure what you're creating right now, but um I'm I'm gonna assume it's uh bagel dough. Uh which bagel are you making right now? Plain. Okay. Because <laughs> I saw I put bang out the plain. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that your Asiago bagels are like probably my top favorite ones. I thought you liked jalapeno. <laughs> I do like jalapeno, but like my, I do, I do like that. You are calling me out on that. I told, Gene, <laughs> I told Gene that, uh, or I told you that Gene and I were gonna fight over the jalapeno bagel. Well, I'll make you jalapeno Asiago. That's what I'll do. Oh, that would be wonderful. Now, for anybody who would like to find you online, where can they find you? Uh, MedfordBagels.com, and we also have Facebook. Medford Bagel Shop. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us on the show, Eric, and I will leave you to making the bagels. <laughs> thank you, Eric. Thanks, Gene. I'll meet you sometime. Okay. Our Get show is Our show is happy to announce we are now available to the hundreds of millions of people on Facebook. Go to your Facebook app, look up Food Farms and Chefs. You can listen to all 145 of our episodes from the Facebook mobile app. Amorous Pollock! You can find me online at AR Pollockus or Amorous Pollock on Facebook and Twitter. And if you would like to be a sponsor or come on the show, you can email me directly at arpollockus at gmail.com. Chef Gene! You can find me across social media at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E-2 at yahoo.com. Or just look up Dean Plum or ibfoodie. We'll see you next week!